What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Black literacy and literature have been a part of the struggle for Black liberation in this country as long as we've been fighting to get free. Our guest this morning has been a key figure in that fight and front on many levels, but specifically through the writing, publishing, and advocating for the proliferation of Black children's books. We are joined this morning by Wade Hudson. Wade Hudson is the author of over 30 books, as well as the president and CEO of Just Us, books for children and young adults that he co-founded with his wife, Cheryl Wills. Hudson, his latest book is Defiant, Growing Up in the Jim Crow South, which is a book for young readers, his homage to people he knew in Mansfield, Louisiana, and his story about growing up there. Defiant is the recipient of the Malka Penn Award for Human Rights and Children's Literature, presented by Dodd Human Rights Impact at UConn. Good morning, Mr. Hudson. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Ken. And how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I am excited about this conversation. I, I just, I loved the book so, so much. Um, thank you. I mean, thank you. Thank for you. young readers, but adults should pick this up um, as well. Um, this memoir of your amazing life. And my listeners know that I love to talk about black grannies. Um, I miss <laughs> mine deeply. Um, and I don't think we talk about them nearly enough and the role they play in shaping us and our families. I agree. I agree. And so I'd love for you to tell us about Mamma. Yeah, she was my father's mother. And uh, I really considered her to be a community uh, mother. Not only was she there for my family during struggling times, but also during good times. Uh, but she was there for the community. And um, she was a very bright, smart woman. She was an entrepreneur uh, when it was very difficult for black people to uh, undertake such uh, pursuit. I, I can remember when I used to go to visit her, she would have horses um, that they would put quilts on and she would actually uh, make quilts for the community. And rarely would we go to her house without her working on a quilt. She also would find ways to grow food, to help provide food for us, our family, but also for the community. In fact, I remember one of my teachers telling me in high school that my grandmother actually could have been a teacher herself. Because in the early days, you know, in the 1930s and before, a lot of high schools, black high schools in particular, only went as far as the eighth grade. So she had finished uh, school, so to speak. And uh, I think that she could have been a teacher if she had wanted to. She was very bright, uh, very smart woman. But she was the first person to buy my baseball cleats. I love to play baseball. And she supported that and my brother as well. She would buy us gloves to play baseball with and always supported me. And, and when I was growing up, I... I recognized early on that I had a gift for writing. So, you know, I would sit on my porch and write poems and short stories, and uh, I would take them to her. And she was one of the primary persons who really understood that artistic and creative side of me and encouraged me. So she lived a long life, and uh, she actually 
unfortunately was brutally killed in a house. I was an adult when that happened. And um, they never found out who uh, who had killed her. But again, she was one of those community mothers who everybody looked up to. And, and I, I want to sort of add to that because my mother was like that as well. And I think that we don't show proper appreciation for black women in general and the role that they have played for so many of us. We sort of take them for granted because they've always been there. They've always been there to provide us with what we what we needed. I'm not putting the brothers down because certainly they play their roles too. But where would we be without black women? And I'm I'm sort of remembering, you know, the civil rights era in which I grew up and when I went to college and started participating in the student movement. It was always black female students who were at the forefront. They didn't always speak. They didn't always have the microphone, but they did all of the hard work to make a demonstration successful, doing the posters and coming up with ideas of what we should do and and, uh, what we should protest for, you know, and uh, there's more attention being paid now, but I still don't think the appropriate attention for what they have done traditionally, centuries, that they get the just do that they deserve. Well, Mr. Hudson, as a black woman, I say I agree. <laughs> and I, I just, you were talking and I, and I was thinking about the, this new beautiful book. And I, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to, to get a copy of it yet that uh, one of my sheroes, Erica Huggins, who's one of the leaders in the Black Panther Party, has in mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's got a beautiful new photographic book uh, called Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party. Okay. And it, it it's all these beautiful photos of, of women in the party and their stories, right, about the work that they did. Yeah. That sure. no one ever talks about. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for our women. And, and, uh, and, and I'm remembering a story about Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth. They were at a conference, and it must have been like 1852, 53, and they both were to speak. And Frederick Douglass spoke first. And uh, it was a very difficult time because uh, there was such a, a backlash against the efforts to, to end slavery. And Frederick Douglass was sort of, had become a little pessimistic. And so his speech actually reflected that. And so following his speech, so Jonah Truth got up and they said that she looked over at Frederick Douglass and she just said, is God dead? Is God dead? And that was enough to get him back on the right track again. So we just thank God for for black women and uh, for that being there to protect us and love us and nurture us and encourage us and push us and give us ideas and uh, without black women, there would be no black people. Facts. All right. All right. All right. So we started off talking about black women and your, your mama, and I believe you called your mother, my dear. And, and part of what makes, right. As I, I was reading your grandmother's uh, accomplishments and the things that she did is that this is taking place in the forties in the 50s in Mansfield, Louisiana. Now, my family's from Monroe, Louisiana. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I know a little bit about small towns in Louisiana, but mm-hmm. could you just for like us geographically uh, stunted folks, place like where's Manf- Mansfield in say comparison to Shreveport or New Orleans where, where folks may have a better sense of where yeah. that is on the map? Yeah, Mansfield is in the northwest part of the state of Louisiana. It's about 25 miles from the Texas border. And uh, I got maybe about 80 miles from Arkansas. And um, it is about 25 miles from Shreveport, which is the largest city in North Louisiana. Now, it is a good seven, six and a half, seven hour drive from Mansfield to, uh, to New Orleans. And actually, the northern part of the state, Monroe, where your parents are from, and, and Mansfield and Shreveport is really more of a, a rural area, although Shreveport is a large city. And uh, the southern part of the state, uh, where New Orleans and Baton Rouge are located, uh, on the water. Now, we, uh, we had you know, small lakes and ponds, but not large bodies of water like the Mississippi River, where New Orleans and Baton Rouge are located. So really, when, you, when I was growing up, it was almost like two different kinds of worlds. Uh, the northern part was, again, agrarian and a lot of farms. And the southern part, New Orleans, was a, a cosmopolitan uh, city. And uh, it was one of the, the leading cities of the, of the South, particularly during, uh, during slavery, along with Charleston and Mobile and, and some of the other cities. But Mansfield was, the population still today is around 5,000 people. It's a majority black town, as it was when I was growing up. And when I was growing up, uh, black people had no political positions. Uh, I was not aware of anybody black who voted when I was growing up. And I, and I grew up in the, the 50s and, and the 60s. I ran across a story doing my research for this book uh, where there were a group of blacks in Mansfield who had pushed to get registered to vote. They were turned back countless times, but they did not give up. And eventually, and this was like in the in the 50s, eventually a few of them were registered to vote. I had no knowledge of that. Nobody talked about that when I was growing up, not even in our schools. Um, so this is something I found out about in doing my research. But what that made me really realize that there are countless efforts and, and, and protests and ways that black people have been fighting back, even in small towns like Mansfield, that we don't know about, uh, that is not a part of our history. And it sort of runs counter to the, the narrative that black people did not fight back enough. We fought back often and many, uh, of our ancestors gave their lives fighting back. That's right. I'd like you to spend a little bit of time talking about what life was like for you for a child in Mansfield on Mary Street with your boys playing baseball, the the folks in the yard that you knew. Just paint a picture for us of, of, of what life was like. Yeah. You know, segregation, Jim Crow, racism, discrimination was all around us. But in our communities, it was 
sort of like life as usual. We played games. We played baseball. In fact, the second chapter in the book, I, I talk about the guys in my, my neighborhood. We call ourselves the Mary Street Boys, you know, playing football together and playing uh, baseball together. And it was um, a lot of fun times in spite of segregation, in spite of having two separate worlds, a white world and the black world. Once we were in our black world, you know, we were happy. We were at peace. We loved each other. We, we, we found uh, time to spend with each other, whether it's having uh, cookouts and, and dances and, and those kinds of things. Now, a lot of the guys who were my age, um, we play sports. And during the 50s and the 60s, you know, becoming a successful uh, athlete, whether it's in baseball or of football, uh, basketball to, to a lesser degree, because basketball was not as popular as football and baseball during that time. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be uh, Willie Mays or uh, Ernie Banks or uh, uh, Jim Brown and, and pursue uh, careers in, in sports. And so that's what we spent a lot of our time doing. We enjoy playing uh, uh, the game of baseball and football, but at the same time, we were thinking about being the next, the next Willie Mays. Even though um, you hear all the negative things about segregation and Jim Crow, and believe me, um, it was horrible. But we always found ways uh, within our own communities to find joy and and love and and uh, and happiness and to uh, encourage each other and to push each other and to to motivate each other. And, and I think that that part of the black experience often gets left uh, out of the conversation because we talk about how terrible Jim Crow uh, was and how terrible discrimination and racism are, and that's certainly true. But our folks have always found ways to create a world for themselves away from that, even though, you know, the horrors were all around, we found space and time. And in fact, I, uh, in writing this book, I was motivated to look deeper into um, how black America itself began. And uh, it led me to write a, a, a manuscript for a picture book. Uh, and that book is coming out uh, in September of this, this year, and it's called uh, Invincible, The Founding Fathers and Mothers of Black America. And in that book, I sort of explain how Black America started, how because we could not participate in white social, the white social structure, we had to create our own institutions, our own uh, schools, our own communities. And in so doing that, we created what we now call black America. So we hear about white America and how white America started, or, or they, as they would say, America started, but black America started right alongside of white America. And not only did we have to build our own institutions, our own spaces to be, but we helped white folks build theirs too. So we did double duty. And and I wanted to tell that story in that book. And, and so Listen, I, I realize more 
profoundly in writing this book just how awesome and black people are and our ancestors were to not only stand against uh, uh, the horrors of slavery and, and Jim Crow during, uh, and recon, uh, the horrors of reconstruction uh, and all of the things that happened uh, to our ancestors. But in spite of that, to be creative and to uh, make enormous contributions to not only to, the, to, to their community, but to uh, the world in, at, at large. And to me, as I was writing this book, I just kept saying to myself, man, black people are something special. We really are. And you really, really capture that uh, in in the book. I, I I said to you before we started that you know normally or or, or very often when people are writing about the South, particularly during this time period, Jim Crow, et cetera, it leads or the stories are told through the lens of white violence. Mm-hmm. But I got like eight chapters of just being able to be engrossed in the beautifulness of the beauty yeah. of, of black culture and, and your childhood. And it was, it was such a gift. Y'all you're listening to law and disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks in conversation with Wade Hudson, who has just released his latest book, defiant growing up in the Jim Crow South. All right, Wade, you, you, you grew up with politics. You had to, as we're, we're talking about the, your, your whole environment was a political mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's. I want to talk about when you were politicized, what that process was like, and um, maybe starting with your junior year in high school, 1963, um, you'd mentioned maybe you wanted to read a little bit from that chapter. I think it's chapter 21. Uh, yes. I'll, I'll read first, and then I'll, I'll talk about um, the chapter when I, I finish reading. Uh, this is, as you said, chapter 21, and it's called Awakening. What happened during 1963 was a revelation to me in so many ways and on so many levels. It was the year I began to question more profoundly what had been passed on to me culturally and in textbooks. Incidents of that year pushed me to ask questions. Finding answers to these questions inspired me to look at the world around me, at what was happening in the country differently. This emerging new way of thinking had an impact on my classroom work. I began to lose interest in excelling academically. I didn't study as diligently as I once had. So much happened during that one year, my junior year of high school. Much of it could be seen on the evening news on national television. I followed it as much as I could sometimes watching NBC and with Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, and sometimes watching Walter Cronkite on CBS. When the national newscasts were expanded from 15 minutes to 30 minutes in the fall of 1963, the new format allowed for much more news to be broadcast. We began to see more coverage of the civil rights movement in the South, now, uh, up until 1963, uh, the evening news was only 15 minutes. And when they went to uh, a 30-minute format, uh, that's when they started to really cover 
civil rights because they needed to to fill that 30 minute slot. I'll continue to read. On January 14th, during the inauguration as governor of Alabama, George Wallace declared segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. These words stayed with me when I heard them. I knew he spoke for millions of white people and for most of those who lived in Mansfield too. But what did that mean for my family, for all black people? Did that mean there would be no end to the smothering grip that white superiority used to try to strangle us out of existence? What did it mean for me and my school friends who saw education as a way to lift ourselves? George Wallace and people like him had all the political and economic power, especially in the South. What were black people like my family to do? On May 3rd, I watched the news from Birmingham, Alabama. The day before, thousands had walked out of school to protest segregation. Theophilus Lugene Bull Connor, the city's commissioner of public safety, and the Birmingham police were determined to show who was in control. Television cameras and photographers captured the ugly violence that followed. The powerful force of fire hoses knocked students to the ground and large police trained dogs attacked them, cornering them against buildings as they tried to get away. As I watched what was, what was happening to youngsters who looked like me, I got angry. I wished I was there. I wanted to be right there with the students, standing up for freedom, standing up against discrimination and racial bigotry. Yes, I had written a letter to the Attorney General of the United States about the treatment of black people in Mansfield. I had written to Walt Disney Studios asking why there were no black Mouseketeers. But those efforts pale when compared to what the students in Birmingham were doing. I grew even more angry when I learned a few black people say things like, those kids are being used and they ought to be in school. They're just making things worse. In fact, I had already heard some dissenting voices among the people of, of Mansfield about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I hadn't paid any attention to them at, the, at that time, but now it matters. I continue to watch every news broadcast to find out more about the students in Birmingham. I knew many of them had been arrested and a large number were expelled from school. But after a few days, the national interest in what became known as the Birmingham Children's Crusade waned. Jet and Ebony Magazine provided some information, but their magazine formats didn't allow them to cover it in depth. We never talked about it in class at school and my parents never talked about it either. Daddy watched the news coverage, but said little. All Madrid would say was, Lord, we have to pray. The devil show is busy. So actually when, during this period of time, so much happened. You had the, the march uh, on Washington uh, in August. The, uh, the four girls that were uh, bombed uh, in that church, 16th uh, Street Baptist Church. Mega Evers was, was killed in 63. And all of this sort of hit me like like a ton of bricks. You know, I was trying to make sense of it. And I kept thinking, why aren't we in Mansfield 
doing something about what was happening. Uh, and so, you know, I asked questions to my parents and teachers and they really couldn't give answers that I was looking for. And, and I think because they had found a way to coexist with um, the Jim Crow system that they had to, to live under. And in so finding that way, um, they were able to find joy and love and happiness in spite of it. And so to move from that by questioning and, and fighting back would jeopardize that little nest that they had sort of positioned themselves in so that they content, could continue to live in mastery because those who had questioned and who had fought back either thrown in jail or uh, run out of town and a few had even been killed. Um, so, so it was frustrating for me because I really wanted to be a part of the movement. And that's what it was called at that particular time. And nothing was happening in Mansfield. And it wasn't until I actually left Mansfield to uh, go to college. I went to Southern University uh, in Baton Rouge um, that I was able to actually participate in the civil rights movement. 63 was the year I became more aware of uh, how different it was for women than it was uh, for men, even in the black community. Women, black women had, they were basically second class citizens in many respect. So I, I really started to come to grips with that, uh, seeing the difference in how, in, in our school, how black female students were relegated to economics and they weren't supposed to um, be able to do well in math and, and chemistry and, and those kinds of courses. And, uh, you know, the black male students were pushed uh, to go uh, into these classes. So, but I became, I started becoming aware of, of, of that as well. Uh, in addition to what Black people were, were dealing with. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Wade Hudson, who's just released his latest book, Defiant, Growing Up in the Jim Crow South. Okay, so there was this, this tension for you about going to college. You were going to be the first one in your family to go to college and joining the movement, but you found the movement in college and became aware, as you were just talking about, you know, the, the intersectionality of, of all of the issues, and you were drafted. Uh, into the Vietnam War, and I wonder if you would um, tell our, our listeners about how you didn't actually end up going to Vietnam. Yeah, well, you know, actually, local school boards used the draft to get those who were protesting the war uh, involved in the civil rights movement to get them um, out of society. And um, because of my um, uh, work in civil rights uh, during this period of time and, and also in the student movement. Um, I, like many other uh, young black males, uh, white ones as well, uh, I was I was drafted. Uh, but I, I was against the war. Uh, I knew that it was wrong. And so I determined um, that I, I would not go. Um, now, I had heard stories about, um, and I also read stories about um, other um, young men who had resisted. Some had uh, gone to Canada, and and uh, and a few had even gone to jail. Um, so, what I decided to do was not show up 
at the induction uh, station and um, I ran. I ran for for almost a year uh, before uh, the FBI actually caught up with me. But because I had not actually refused induction, they uh, gave me another induction notice and said if I didn't show up then that I would be arrested. So I actually went to the induction center. Now, when I was originally inducted, it was the um, the center in my hometown of Mansfield. So that's I, that's how I knew it was political. They were trying to get get rid of me. Um, so the second notice, I was actually um, uh, told to go to the induction center in New Orleans. And it was there that <laughs> that I put on um, this front acting crazy uh, and um, doing stupid stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and and so they uh, pulled me out of the line, uh, you know, cursed. I, I cursed a couple of white boys out and threatened to hit them and, and all of that. So they pulled me out of line and uh, sent me to see the Army uh, uh, psychologist. I guess he was a psychologist. Maybe he was a psychiatrist. I'm not sure. But I, as I look back on it, and I think I may have written this in the book, I think the good Lord stepped in on my behalf because he said to me, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, so you don't have any psychological problem. You just don't want to go um, go to Vietnam. And I said, well, I think you're right. I don't want to go. But he ended up giving me a, a one-wide classification, which meant that I didn't have to go. And um, so I was I was fortunate because a number of, uh, in fact, one of the first persons that I remember being killed in Vietnam was a high school friend of mine. His name was Gary Hadnot. Uh, we graduated in 64 in May, and he volunteered. And that fall, he was killed in in Vietnam. And, um, you know, I said, you know, that that, would, that will not happen to me. So anyway, um, I did not have to go in the Army. And uh, obviously, Muhammad Ali refused induction and uh, as well. And a, a lot of other young men also refused uh, to fight in that war. Okay, so you didn't you didn't go to jail for dodging the draft or you didn't get arrested for dodging the draft, but you were at one point arrested because of your political activism and accused of conspiring to kill the mayor as well as I think the police chief and Yes, they were. And you know, and, and it was because uh we were registering people to vote. Uh we had set up um tutorial uh, program for young people. We had set up a library uh, in the black community uh, where Southern University was located. Uh, it's a little uh, section of Baton Rouge called Scotlandville. Um, and uh, we also had a breakfast program modeled after the uh, Black Panther Party. And, uh, and some of the young uh, people who were part of our group and that we were mentoring they wore berets like the uh, the Black Panthers, except our beret were were red. So um, the the white power structure in Van Rouge, you know, I guess they said that we have to we have to stop these people. The group that, that the organization that we uh, formed was called Soul S O U L Society for Opportunity, Unity, and Leadership, 
And um, I was arrested. I was the vice chair of the organization. Frank Stewart um, was the chair of the organization. He was arrested. And another member, um, Alphonse Snedeker, uh, was also arrested. And um, Alphonse was a, a Vietnam veteran. And uh, when he came back uh, from the war, I mean, he had, to, you know, he had a lot of uh, mental problems and, and he was looking uh, to make connections and uh, with people who were doing positive things. And so we spent a lot of time with him actually uh, mentoring him and uh, trying to get him on, on the right track. But anyway, the three of us were were arrested and uh, that was quite an ordeal. We became the Baton Rouge Three and uh, you know received a lot of uh, media coverage. Uh, NBC News uh, uh, came down and uh, my mother, uh, when she found out about it, uh, she actually <laughs> left my hometown, Mansfield, and uh, came to Baton Rouge uh, to, to support me. But she found out about it uh, on the news, you know, because I couldn't I couldn't call her to let her know. Uh, but it was it was quite an ordeal. And but, you know, so much of that was happening at this at this time. Um, the way um, they would uh, get rid of uh, uh, those who were fighting for freedom and justice uh, and equality at this time, they, they would just create uh, conspiracies uh, and uh, sometimes send in, uh, which is in our case, now I'll explain that, what they did, they sent in uh, what we call at that time a rat, someone to infiltrate our organization. And his job was to entrap us uh, into this, this conspiracy that they were trying to set up. Fortunately for me, I f felt that there was something weird about this guy. So I really didn't do any talking around him. Now, he was tape recording everybody and, uh, and we didn't know he was doing it. Um, and so they used those tapes to uh, to indict us. And I was in jail for a, a couple of weeks and they had to release me because they could not find any way to connect me with the alleged conspiracy. Uh, and but they, they still kept um, Frank and Alphonse uh, in jail. And Frank, in fact, Frank was in jail for almost a couple of years of fighting. Uh, and he was eventually freed as well as Alphonse. But it 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 took a lot uh, to fight uh, back against these. Uh, and, and nothing ever happened to to. Uh, the the uh, the person who set this whole thing up. I mean, he was black. He was black, and we we found out, you know, some years later that a number of particularly black men who were a part of our group and a part of our community of protesters were working undercover. There were so many uh, ways that the white power structure used to. Uh, to defeat the, uh, the movement. And uh, some of it was successful because a lot of, a lot of uh, black people were actually killed uh, uh, by these efforts.
And we still have so many of our elders, and I say this every time I get the opportunity, that are still languishing in prison because right. of the right. setup by the white power structure. And I, we can't forget about them. That's right. They That's are right. still there. Um, all right, wait. I'm I'm almost out of time, but I don't I don't want to leave without the politics. I I told you I was gonna make this crack, and I'm gonna make it. <laughs> um, and that is, I am guessing that children in Florida are not going to have access to this amazing book. And given that you are someone that has spent your life making sure that, that Black children have access to stories about them, and not just any kind of stories, but stories that reflect their Black beauty, um, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on, on what's happening in Florida, on, on what has happened to the advanced placement curriculum for Black students, and what you think the potential impact is on our people and our movement to get free. Well, if they are successful and obviously they're passing the legislation um, in Florida, but this this is a national movement, uh, Kat. Um, there are a lot of local school boards um, uh, that have banned a lot of books, including, you know, uh, books that we've done, my wife and I, uh, in, in different uh, localities. Um, there's uh, an assault on libraries. I think uh, it was in Missouri recently where uh, the, the, uh, the legislature uh, voted to defund uh, libraries because librarians had fought back against the banning of books. So they said, okay, we'll just defund the, the libraries. So it's a national movement. And in a post on Facebook, I said this, I said, if you want to know what it would look like if Ron DeSantis and this right-wing movement uh, are successful uh, in removing and banning books that they feel pushes back against the narrative of white superiority if they are successful. Read my book, Defiant, uh, because in the school system where I um, that I attended, it was segregated, and white people determined what the curriculum was, they determined what books that we could read. They determined what books could be in our library. And as a youngster growing up, all the wonderful writers like Langston Hughes and Richard Wright, they didn't exist for me because I didn't have access to those books because the white folks who made the decision of, about what would be in the school curriculum and what would be in the, the library did not allow those books to be carried. So um, I wanted to be a writer. I knew I had the gift to write when I was like seven or eight years of age. But it was so it, it was a lonely kind of pursuit for me because there wasn't anybody I could identify with because I didn't have access to to books written um, by black writers. And it wasn't until I got to Southern University uh, when I saw all these wonderful black writers who had written so many great books and and I started and I got angry and I think I write about this in the, in the memoir I got angry because I was, I was thinking to myself suppose I was exposed to these books when I was younger how much further uh, along would I be as a writer but there are so many people fighting back though parents are organizing 
Uh, students are organizing, fighting back across the country. And um, we continue to encourage them to, to fight back. Uh, it's not easy because in many of these states, uh, the Republicans dominate the, the, the governments. Even uh, I think those of us who really care and those of us who think progressively, we've sort of fallen asleep at the wheel, you know, and we've allowed them to come in and take control of school boards and, mm-hmm. and local governments. And, and we didn't take them seriously. Yeah, yeah. So now we, you know, I think we recognize that we must organize the same way that they have organized because That's right. they have been doing this for decades. They, they had a plan 30 years ago to take over state legislatures and take over uh, local governments. And there are a lot of white people who've been supporting this. And we just assumed that the progress that we had made uh, would remain and we can continue to add on to it. But now we recognize that we got to fight for it to, to, just to maintain what we have done and because um, now they're starting to to uh, rescind a lot of the progress that have been made, not not only um, as it relates to to black people and people of color, but women as well. So I think we now understand that this is a war, you know, and, and we have to uh, amp up our, our game and really be engaged and involved and, and organized and and. Uh, really spend time developing our narrative of what we want our country and our world to be and not be forced to react to the narrative that they are forcing down our throats. That's right. And as you say, I believe they are the last words that you write in the book. I believe uh, the struggle continues. That's right. And thank you. I said it before we started recording, but I'm going to say it because I want the listeners to hear, thank you for your many, many, many years. You and your wife, because she fierce too. I might have to get her on the show. Oh yes, she's one of those those strong women that I that I talk about. Without her, yeah. there would be no Just Us books, and without her, there would be no Wade Hudson as you see him today. So I am so blessed and thankful that God placed her in my life. Well, shout out to Cheryl. Y'all, you've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning has been Wade Hudson. Wade is an author, publisher, and the president and CEO of Just Us Books, Inc., an independent publisher of books for children and young adults. He has published over 30 books, including the anthologies We Rise, We Resist, We Raise Our Voices, The Talk, and Recognize, an anthology honoring and amplifying Black life. His latest book, that we've been talking about today. His memoir about growing up in the Jim Crow South is Defiant, Growing Up in the Jim Crow South. Wade Hudson, thank you for this conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.